Hello, sports fans, and welcome to another edition of Yesterday Sports on the Sports History Network. And make sure to check out sportshistorynetwork.com slash giveaways. I have two signed books I'm giving away. One is titled No Nonsense Old School Weight Training, and the other is Reliving 1970s Old School Football. This podcast is part of the Sports History Network, your headquarters for the yesteryear of your favorite sport. You can learn more at sportshistorynetwork.com. We have spent the better part of the last four years talking about the forgotten heroes who played the games we love to watch. As we get deeper into the holiday season of this crazy year, 2020, perhaps it's time we talk about someone who figured out a way to talk about the stars of the game and yet use his platform to make a difference and give back as well. Stay tuned for a special edition of Sports Forgotten Heroes and a discussion about a terrific sports writer, Jerry Eisenberg. This is Sports Forgotten Heroes, a tribute to the stars who shape the games we love to watch and the games we love to play. Stars who provided us with many thrills, but when their time was up, they faded away. We'll take a look back at their spectacular careers, their moments of fame, even if it was just for one season or just one game. And now, here's your host, Warren Rogan. Hello and welcome to Sports Forgotten Heroes, episode number 95, Jerry Eisenberg. For those of you who know Jerry and read his coverage of sports, watched his documentaries, or read his books, you don't need much of an introduction to whom Jerry is. But for those of you who haven't or have never heard of Jerry, here's a little more about him. Jerry's career as a newspaper reporter and a columnist spans generations. From the early 1950s to the present day, He has written about championship teams and Olympic icons, baseball and football superstars, and boxing legends. Along the way, he became one of the best American sports columnists. Until Super Bowl 54, Jerry was one of two men, the other being Jerry Green, who attended every Super Bowl in person. But for Super Bowl 54... He watched the game and reported on it from home, and impressively, not only did he predict the Kansas City Chiefs would win, he predicted the final score as well, 31-20. Another sport Jerry loved to cover was the Triple Crown, and his coverage of the sport was prolific. In fact, no matter what Jerry wrote about, in the end, his coverage of it was Well, prolific. His love for his craft, his attention to detail was, and still is, second to none. And how he was able to take advantage of his position as a writer to give back and right wrongs is truly remarkable. And I'm going to get into a lot of it with Ed Odovan, who just released a new ebook called going 15 rounds with Jerry Eisenberg. Now, before we get to my conversation with Ed, a few notes. 
I love this podcast. It's a hobby, a passion. It's not my day job. I actually have to work for a living, and my work takes me on the road quite often. So, this episode of Sports Forgotten Heroes was recorded over Zoom in my hotel room. So the audio, while perfectly, well, audible, is not exactly as crisp as we're all used to. Add to that, I did record the conversation with Ed over Zoom, and he was in his place in Tokyo. But again, you should have no issues understanding or hearing any of it. But I did want to bring that to your attention. Also, as always, please follow Sports Forgotten Heroes on Twitter at SportsFHeroes. Look for Sports Forgotten Heroes on Instagram or the Sports Forgotten Heroes page on Facebook. And of course, you can always go to SportsFH.com to learn more about my guests, the forgotten stars I talk about, ask questions, make suggestions, or just let me know how I'm doing. Again, that's SportsFH.com. And as always, thanks for your support. One more note for you. Sports Forgotten Heroes is now a part of the Sports History Network. A bunch of us sports history aficionados have teamed up so you can now find podcasts about all sorts of sports history in one place, and that's SportsHistoryNetwork.com. Again, SportsHistoryNetwork.com. Okay, without further ado, let's get to today's show about Jerry Eisenberg with my guest, Ed Odom. Ed, thanks for hunting me down and joining me on Sports Forgotten Heroes. So glad you could be here. Uh, thank you very much, Warren. Uh, it's a pl- pleasure to be with you. Awesome. Hey, you know, um, Jerry Eisenberg is not, at least to me, is not as much a forgotten sports personality as he mm-hmm. is, I think, more a personality whom so many don't know or who have never known. And it's a shame because his work is really second to none. A longtime columnist for the Newark Star-Ledger, an author, a producer, a director, a writer, a true sports treasure. So let me ask you this. What was your motivation to write a book about Jerry Eisenberg? You know, Jerry, um, Jerry is, in my opinion, a prolific storyteller and just an institution within sports. And I wanted to kind of find out what made him tick over the years, what made him have the passion to do his job so well, going back to the 1950s and I wanted to learn about his career through, through his eyes, which is actually the, uh, the intro um, to his mem- memoir written several years ago. But I also wanted to learn like how he saw the sports world, how he approached his job, how, uh, just how he uh, stayed interested in, in everything, uh, not just the winners, but the losers and, and the trends within sports. And how he viewed sports as a microcosm of society. For those that don't know him, who is Jerry Eisenberg? Okay. Jerry Eisenberg is a journalist who has covered 
every Super Bowl, uh, and there, there have only been two newspaper columnists who have done so, Jerry Green of the Detroit News and Jerry Eisenberg of the Star-Ledger. But this year was the first year he covered the Super Bowl away from the venue. He actually watched it from a Las Vegas uh, sports, uh, uh, sports, bookie, book. a sports a sports book. book. Um, so he, he actually ended his streak of attending every Super Bowl in person. So he, he turned 90 years old in September. So, yes, he's a longtime sports journalist, but he's also just a person who is uh, – always interested in the craft of writing stories and telling stories. He published his first novel at age 90 uh, just a couple of weeks ago. And um, he's been semi-retired for uh, 12, 13 years now, but he still is covering, like I said, the Super Bowl, major boxing fights, the triple crown horse races. He writes remembrances on prominent people when they pass away or are issues that he thinks need to be uh a stand taken on. Uh, so he, he's the guy that remains interested in the world of sports. But you go back decades before, he joined the Star-Ledger for the uh, his continuous uh, arc of his career in 1962. But he had started there in 51 as a college student. So think, who do you know who's been working in journalism since 1951? Anybody else? <laughs> I can't think of anybody right off the bat, no. Okay. So what's also neat about his career is he was a he was a young reporter at the old New York uh, Herald Tribune, which is no longer in existence, but a paper that really um, had some great writers like Jimmy Breslin and Dick Schapp. Uh, Red Smith used to write a column there and Jerry Smith, Jerry Eisenberg's desk in the office. I don't know how often he was actually in the office, either of them, but his desk was actually next to Red Smith. Wow. And, um, Okay, his sports editor, uh, Stanley Woodward, who worked at both the Star-Ledger and the Herald-Tribune, was, was considered by many the greatest sports uh, editor of all time. He was the guy who mentored Jerry. So there's a pipeline of people uh, going back to the beginning of the 19th of the 20th century who were important in his career. And, um, you know, he covered like... Uh, he knew Vince Lombardi very well, dating back to when he was with the New York Giants and when he was at Fordham, uh, Univers Fordham University. And um, he knew Pete Rozelle very well, the author of one of his books. He, so he had a real connection to people from the old school, but he's really tight with Manny Pacquiao and uh, with Freddie Roach, that boxing, you know, the, the boxer-trainer tandem. So he's very relevant um, to this day. You know, when you consider sports writing, you think of names like the late Dave Anderson or Red Smith or Jim Murray, Shirley Povich, Jimmy Cannon. The list goes on and on. I mean, there have been, you know, these phenomenal, phenomenal sports writers whom we can roll off the tip of our tongues like I just did. Mm hmm. These are the names of sports reporters many in our audience might recognize, but not everyone might recognize the name of Jerry Eisenberg. Why do you suppose that is, and what made his writing, his style, stand out? Okay, well, I think that the national distribution of the, New the Newark Star-Ledger 
just didn't have the coast-to-coast -coast market of some of the other papers like the New York uh, Times or the Chicago Tribune in its heyday or the LA, the LA Times where uh, Jim Murray worked. But for decades, Jerry's column was syndicated in small newspapers across the country and some bigger papers. So people may recognize his name, but it might have um, uh, you know, fallen off their memory banks because of just the overexposure of other people. Um, but, you know, he, he was really good friends with Jim Murray and Dave Anderson um, and, and some of these other guys. Uh, and, and uh, you know, Dave Anderson really spoke highly of him in a chapter of the book that I wrote and really admired his writing and others as well, like John Shulian, who went on to produce, um, what was it, Xena the Warrior Princess? Am I saying that right? I think so. He has, <laughs> a, he, he has great admiration for Jerry. And, and what I learned and what I appreciated in reading his work uh, in my younger days, and um, once I graduated college and became a full-time journalist, uh, Jerry is a great storyteller with a knack for details and the ability, like Ernest Hemingway, to write succinctly and to give you a point. And uh, yeah, he can, he can get into flowery prose and write a 90-word sentence, 150 words, something that Jimmy Breslin really uh, you know, told people not to do. But Jerry... Um, Jerry was just a great storyteller and he found angles and he found nuggets of information that carried a story. Um, it wasn't about all the statistics like, uh, you know, like top to bottom of analytics and over, over, um, overdoing that. He knew how to talk to people, knew how to get them to say stuff that was interesting, develop relationships with them. Those were among his greatest skills. Ed, during all the interviews that you did, and you interviewed a lot of people, what surprised you most about Jerry? What did you learn about Jerry Eisenberg that made you go, wow? Okay. I guess I realized he was a hard worker and he was prolific. Maybe those are hand in hand. Um, but I guess that one of the things that, that was a recurring theme with everybody from Dave Anderson to Ira Burkow to John Shulian. I didn't mention Wallace Matthews, but he also repeated these same kind of thoughts. And he's decades younger than Jerry and also Jeremy Schapp, who's also you know, many years younger. Uh, they, all, they all said that he just has a passion that never dies out. He's always looking for the next story. And he always has like five or six ideas that are in the back of his mind that are, you know, he's thinking about what he wants to do even before he finishes what he's doing now. So to me, that's inspiring in my own career working for Japan forward and previous outlets before where I want to be motivated to continue to strive for excellence in whatever I'm writing or reporting. How did his, um, how did his fellow writers treat him? What kind of respect? did they give him? And by the way, let's just, we are recording this podcast. Today is November 18th, 2020. And yeah. when I speak of Jerry in the past tense, it's sort of not exactly correct because Jerry's still with us. Yeah, that's a good point to make. And, um, I try to read every one of his columns that comes out now. Um, I find his work relevant as relevant now as what he was writing in the 80s 
and in the 60s um, and in between. Um, you know, decades ago, he also did a lot of magazine work. So uh, it's a treat to go back and read some of those things as well. He just has a he, he's kind of like a painter where he just has a, a style. You know, he he pick, paints the, the, the paints a picture with words, I should say. And um, sometimes this is a really obscure word will come out of nowhere. But you, you look at it and you say, that's the perfect word or that's the perfect phrase to use in that situation. How, how did his fellow writers, I mean, how do his fellow writers, I mean, how, what kind of respect does he have from everybody in the industry? And how did, you know, even the guys that have since passed along, passed on, how did they all mm -hmm. respect him and treat him? What did they all think of Jerry Eisenberg? Okay. Uh, let me mention a couple names of people that uh, also were interviewed that um, kind of, kind of explain that point. Um, Ed, Edwin Pope of the Miami Herald. Um, I got to speak to him very briefly a couple years ago. I think it was 2017, right before he passed away. And uh, he, he was having trouble hearing. So I kept the interview really short. But um, he, you know, he said, like, I met Jerry for the first time in the, like the late 1950s. And, uh, and you just look at his writing and, and he just, I, I respect that he just, he put pride into his work and he was a great storyteller. And he, he respected the English language, you know, to not just um, like write in a way that was uh, pompous or arrogant, but to get right in a way that people could uh, appreciate uh, the craft and the structure of the sentences and the paragraphs. Um, uh, a couple other people that, uh, that really, um, I guess, hammered home on that point a bit more. Ira Burkow was a Pulitzer Prize winner at the New York Times. Uh, He's also semi-retired, but he's about a decade younger than Jerry. And he said, like, you know, when I'm that age, uh, you know, I probably still want to write a little bit. But um, I really admire that he's always thinking about new projects and um, that he takes pride in his work. People say, like, yeah, he, he, the, his work ethic was second to none. But also he had the respect of people around the leagues that he covered, around the, around the institutions of sports like the boxing gyms, like uh, the horse racing uh, barns. Like he may write a column they don't like one day, but he's back out there the next day. And these are his opinions based on facts. So he does the work, he digs in, you know, finds the facts. That was something that really was, uh, you know, came up again and again and again. And um, George, George Foreman, uh, you know, he just said, yeah, Jerry, Jerry is a good guy. And he, you know, he's, he's around. We always, we always saw him and uh, he always asked us questions. He, he was always curious. So I think that's uh, something that other people said as well, that many people said, I should say. Well, let's talk about a couple of the writers he considered mentors. Um, okay. Let's start with Shirley Povich. Why Shirley? Why did he consider Shirley Povich a mentor? And by the way, you cannot end the discussion about Shirley without telling us the story that you relayed in your book about the warning Shirley gave to a certain person from the mob about an impending raid of his restaurant. It was a very fun story to read. 
Okay. Um, but first tell surely, us why, 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 you know, Jerry considered him a mentor. He considered him a mentor because of, he was a gentleman in a, in a profession where honesty is not necessarily always, um, uh, you know, embraced where, uh, in the old days, like promoters might, uh, you know, want to give you uh, some money under the table or might want to bribe you to write something to promote something in a certain way. And, um, Jerry is considered, uh, Shirley Poe was an honest guy and a guy who, who always, uh, reported the facts and did not want to be influenced by someone outside of his, uh, out, out, by anybody. He just wanted to do the job and do the, do it to the best of his ability. And, uh, like, like Jerry, he also, uh, has, he had a heck of a long career into his late nineties. He was still writing a column for the Washington post. And if I remember correctly, uh, the home run chase between Sammy Sosa and Mark McGuire, uh, possibly his last column was sort of a recollection of, of the way that the media and the way he even wrote about Roger Maris and Babe Ruth in those years when they were, um, setting their records, uh, in 61 for Roger and 1927 for the Babe. That's fun. Tell us about, uh, Shirley Povich and the mobster, uh, that he gave a, a warning to, if you, if you, if you remember the story and if you can relay it to us. Okay. I, uh, I need to, I need to brush up on the tone setting of it to make it into a mini play. But, um, uh, in, in one example of the way Jerry, uh, like talk about the honesty uh, and the ethics, the journalism ethics of, of, of Shirley Povich, uh, he, he sometimes, uh, he knew people from the mob and, you know, people that, people that were connected to horse racing and boxing and baseball and such, as was very common back in the earlier part of the 20, 20th century. And um, at, at one of these uh, visits to, uh, uh, I, I think it was, I think, I it, was think it was a, okay, so he was visiting Detroit, uh, Shirley Povich was, and he, I think he entered into a, um, uh, let me see, wasn't it, uh, wasn't it just a saloon or a, yeah, uh, yeah. a book, a book, uh, he, he entered a, he entered a, a bar and he saw one of the, one of the, uh, mobsters there and surely told the guy um i hear that the um i hear they're going to raid your place for gambling so I, I think you should clean it up right yeah and uh the the guy wanted to pay him back give him something in return and uh, he said no i i can't accept anything so and he tried uh, on several occasions to give him something yeah like uh uh, I, I think he was going to, he offered him like, um, you know, free booze or a, a fur coat or, or even women. I think he tried to bribe him in, in, and Shirley said, no, I'm not taking anything. You've been friendly to me. You're, he may not agree with the guy's lifestyle or what he does, but he said, no, I'm not taking anything. Uh, I just wanted you to be aware that um, the, 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 the FBI, the law enforcement is coming after you. Okay, so it turns out that the guy uh, eventually did give him something. And uh, it was sort of a joke, though, in a funny way. Uh, 
I can't remember how he received it. Was it in his coat pocket or yeah. uh, on the table? I think I'm it was forgetting an envelope. that he, he, it was an envelope or something. Yeah, yeah. Okay, so Jerry, uh, so Jerry relayed the story that that Shirley Povis eventually received payback from this guy, and it turned out to be a a key that unlocked all the pay toilets in the city of Chicago. Which is pretty so, darn funny. Isn't that funny? Very funny. Yeah, this way Shirley, yeah. Uh, if Shirley was ever short any money, he knew where to go get some money. But of course, being the honest person that he was, he he never he never used that key. Right. What about Red Smith? Tell us a little bit about Red Smith and how Jerry looked up to Red Smith, who, like you said, um, sat next to uh, uh, Jerry sat next to him uh, uh, early on in his career. Okay, and 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 actually, because Red Smith um, continued working until the early '80s when he passed away, uh, Jerry knew him from the '50s and on. So for parts of four decades. So by that time, of course, Jerry was a lot more prominent. But yeah, he saw he saw Red uh, approach the craft um, in a in a way that he appreciated. Um, what I mean by that is he he always spoke about Red. Um, Red's uh, use of the English language. It wasn't just about the su subject, verb, and direct object, for example, but it was about, you know, having a vocabulary, learning, learning how to use the vocabulary, learning how to write eloquently, but also simply. He said that, he said that Red gave us license to use the English language. And, um, I guess maybe a lot of sports writers maybe approached it more like meat and potatoes. Interesting. What about Jim Murray? Okay. Um, they were, they were very good friends and um, they like Red Smith. Uh, often these guys in the old days when columnists had a lot more travel opportunities and a bigger budget, um, they would meet up uh, like at the Super Bowl. And at the Triple Crown races, the dirt, the Kentucky Derby, Belmont Stakes, the Preakness, and they would meet up at the World Series, generally speaking. So four or five, six times a year, these guys might be around, maybe at one of the big golf events. Um, and uh, Jerry was based in Newark and in New York, and uh, Jim Murray in, in L.A. So they met up a couple times a year. Also, Jack Murphy in San Diego. They were kind of a tight posse, uh, and a couple others, Edwin Pope. Blackie Sherrod down in Texas. Um, but as far as Jim Murray goes, uh, Jerry spoke about um, the way that Re uh, the way that Jim used his um, his his magazine work and he wrote about movies and, and television early in his career and about and how he kind of like described Hollywood, you know, like the storytelling, but through a visual medium. And Red brought that, uh, Jim, I'm sorry, Jim brought that to his, his uh, newspaper columns. He, he sort of had a broader perspective that you might find in magazines. Uh, he took a step back from, say, the score of the game or the leading key stats, and uh, he told stories. He, he spin yarns. He told jokes. Uh, but he also... Jerry said again and again that, that, that Jim's perspective was what really uh, enticed him to uh, 
respect his columns. Sam Lacey. Tell us who Sam Lacey was, why Eisenberg liked him, and how Sam stood up to racism as far as sports writers are concerned. Okay. Sam Lacey uh, was a African-American uh, newspaper uh, columnist for decades uh, and working for uh, African-American uh, Black-owned uh, media. And um, he his coverage of baseball dated back to the Negro Leagues and uh, to Jackie Robinson breaking into the uh, with the with the Brooklyn Dodgers in the National League. Of course, that same year, Larry Doby broke in with the Cleveland Indians, and um, and Sam Lacy, you know, he was proud about the fact that he was a credentialed member of the Baseball Writers Association of America. He took pride in in having a card and in being credentialed. But he also took pride in doing the job. And um, one uh, one story that illustrates his convictions and just his um, his recognition that it was important for him to take a stand for himself and for people that followed him, I guess the precedent that might follow, right? Um, Sam Lacey um, was down in New Orleans uh, for spring training to watch uh, Larry Doby play. And I believe this was the, the first year, 47. It might have been 48. It might have been 48 with the story. Um, I'm pretty sure it was 47. And he went down to the game and, uh, you know, entered, entered the gate, uh, went, went up to the press gate and said, I'm here to, I'm here to report on Larry Doby. And um, the usher at the gate, you know, using all, or, all sorts of profanities and the N-word said, I'm not letting you into that stadium. Well, you know, that was not what Stan wanted to hear. That was not what he accepted. And he said, well, I have a job to do. Uh, you know, this guy is the first black player in the American League. It's my job to, to write about him. And uh, the guy said, uh, you know, he wouldn't, he wouldn't take no for an answer. And then the guy, I guess, just wanted to get rid of him. And said something to the effect of, fine, you go sit on the roof up there. So Sam Lacey took a took a folding chair and and, and walked up. Uh, it might have been a ladder, even right, like connected to the like upper level, and he 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 set up his own one man press box on the roof, and um, and did his job. And and sometime during that game, uh, I don't know I don't know where the word. I guess somebody might have been just spot looking around, and maybe they were walking to get a drink. And they somehow spotted somebody on the roof. I'm not sure of that detail, but somehow a group of three or four uh, white sports reporters found out that Sam Lacey was on the roof, and they left the press box and went up and joined him. And uh, they had been based in Florida for other spring training events, and they went up on the roof and took chairs and sat with him in a rare show of solidarity, probably at this at this point in time, uh, in a sort of a significant moment in civil rights history. And um, one of those white sports reporters um, said to Sam, uh, like, uh, yeah, we're here to, um, we're here to, you know, work on our tan. And uh, I guess it was sort of a way of breaking the ice to joke about it, but they had already been in Florida for several weeks and they already had a tan. 
like they had gotten plenty of sun already, but they probably respected this guy that he's so willing to go to any means to do his job. And, uh, you know, this story was brought up in the book, uh, going 15 rounds with Jerry Eisenberg, because he really focused on race and civil rights throughout his career. Sure. And we're going to get into some more of that. Um, and before we do get into more about Jerry, you know, one of the things that struck me when I was reading your book, Going 15 Rounds with Jerry Eisenberg, and, you know, what an apropos uh, uh, title, um, I think why he was such a great writer and what made his writing even better was the human aspect to it. Sort of something like what you said just a little while ago about Jim Murray. What I mean by that is this. He was able to make his writing more than just about sport. You really learned something when you read his column. I mean, he established a relationship with the stars he covered, a la Muhammad Ali. And he established a relationship with those who read him religiously every single day. Can you talk about that? I, I think to him, um, exploring the human condition, so to speak, is as interesting as how the game or the tournament or the season unfolded. He sort of used that as a prism into describing what a team or what an individual um, went through, how they lived their life, how they overcame obstacles, how they dealt with um, institutional racism decades ago, how they dealt with uh, overcoming cancer, for example, or growing up in poverty. He, he found an angle that was about their human condition. And um, one other thing that I think he, he did and he was given license to do, and it was wise that they did it, but the Star-Ledger sort of allowed him to be an activist through his column and allowed him to take a stand. And um, what he wanted to say, he had a platform to say. And um, the Star-Ledger is a statewide newspaper which used to have a circulation on Sundays, I think of uh, several hundred thousand. So it was he, like uh, six, uh, what was it? It was just over a million on the weekends and over right, 600,000 right. on the weekdays. Yeah, so his column was syndicated around the country for, for many years, but his hardcore readers, you know, English teachers like in, uh, you know, New Jersey high schools, uh, you know, uh, generations of fathers and sons, you know, would read his columns and talk about like the baseball and the stories he told from the Newark Bears to like the Joe Torre Yankees. They had, they had a co commonality in, in the way he, 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 he wrote about the past, but connected it to the present. And he, he made every story relevant to uh, something beyond the statistics. And a lot of sports reporters and columnists are really basic, right? They don't go beyond like what happens on the field. Exactly, exactly. And like you said, he was able to use his column to, to uh, you know, promote equality. And it wasn't just, it wasn't fake. Mm. He really did it. 
And and here's yeah. a great story about it. You you have a great story about it. So let me just set it up this way. What kind okay. of influence did Jerry have by virtue of his writing? And what I'm referring to is his handling of Eno Slaughter, the St. Louis Cardinals, Ford Frick, and Jackie Robinson. Please share with us what happened and how Jerry's involvement helped curb something that had the potential to really stain baseball. Um, time out a second, okay? That was actually um, that was actually Stanley Woodward uh, calling up saying he was going to oh, write a column. Oh, okay. So I misunderstood that. Well, then let's go with the, with this. But 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 I will I will pre I will follow up on that by saying this showed. When we talk about mentors, Stanley Woodward had a moral compass that really impacted Jerry. He saw that Woodward did this. He took a stand and used the power of the press to say, I'm going to write this if you don't do this. So he was telling Ford Frick, if you don't, um, if you don't stop this, uh, uh, this racism from happening, we are going to, I'm going to get this published in the magazine. And, uh, you know, you are going to be, no, no, he kind of, he bribed him. He said, if you do this, you will be, uh, you will be you'll given be remembered, like, yeah, you'll be, you'll, remembered you'll, you'll be credited for stopping this other thing. Otherwise he was just going to bash the heck out of him. Right. Right. Exactly. Exactly. But, for, but Jerry, okay. So this was, um, so Jerry had worked in the 1950s in the early fifties, he had worked under Woodward uh, at the at the Star Ledger. Then a couple of years later, um, Woodward went uh, went over to the New York New York Herald Tribune, and Jerry was there from uh, I think fifty eight until sixty one, and Woodward actually groomed him to be a columnist, and he told him, "You need to take the job at the Star Ledger. You're ready to be the guy." And one of the stories about being the guy was the fact that. The job of a the job of a columnist is to take a stand when when it is necessary to take to take a stand. Well, I think that Jerry really did that, and it was more than just his words. His actions also spoke to that. We're going to get into that in just a bit. Okay. But he his his voice was really that for equality, civil rights, blacks, Jews, minorities. What laid the groundwork for that outlook on life? And how did he use his column to express his views and make sure his voice was heard? And I, I, I guess I'm sort of prefacing all that with he, he wanted to do something different, wanted to write about something different, and I forget the circumstances that led to all of it, but he was going to go. Um, he was assigned. He wanted to do this. And they said, go cover Florida A&M football. And he said, no, I want to go to Eddie Robinson and Grambling. Tell us about that experience. Okay. Um, Roger Kahn, who passed away um, uh, earlier this year, correct? I, uh, it might've been this year. Yes. It might've been late last year. I think it was around February. Uh, Roger Khan, 
was uh, was the sports editor um, at uh, Saturday Evening Post, I want to say. And um, yeah, he, he, he passed away in February of, of 2020. Okay, yeah, so uh, this year. he he was a magazine sports editor, and him and Jerry were discussing um, college football projects and um, assignments. And Jerry wanted to Roger Roger wanted him to go down and, and do a Florida A and M story uh, about a, a, a traditionally uh, a school with a lot of a lot of a lot of black players, a uh, historically black college, and. Jerry said, like, well, that story's been done. People know about that school. People are aware of that story, aware of where that team is located. It sort of had a lot of um, coverage previously by other people. Um, and he said, I, I think I should go to Grambling in, in Louisiana. This is a school that is, that is getting all these players drafted, all these talented players, uh, you know, being followed by the scouts. But why, what is going on here? Why is this a pipeline? I think I should be. I, I think I should go there and explore this story. And uh, he convinced um, uh, he convinced Khan that this was what he should do. And uh, you know, he went down to he went to Grambling, and um, he he actually stayed on campus for for days. And um, he was the first black uh, white reporter to to visit the school and to be with the football team. And he stayed in the dormitories. He ate breakfast with the players in the cafeteria. This was a way of him enmeshing himself uh, with, with everybody. And um, in fact, he also worked on a documentary about the, the program while he was there. So he was doing multiple hats, wearing multiple hats at the same time. And um, what, he what said, became he the... Said, he said he was really able to understand what it was like for a black person because when he walked into the cafeteria, like yeah. you said, he was the only white person on campus. And mm -hmm. when he walked into the cafeteria and everybody looked at him, all of a sudden he had traded places and he knew, he felt, at least he thinks he felt what mm -hmm. it was like to be in their shoes. And that led to so much more about his life. You know, um, what, what became interesting and became relevant, and this is a common thread throughout Jerry's career with other people from his first visit to Eddie Robinson's uh, campus grambling until he passed away. They were. They became good friends. They he 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 visited uh, Grambling many many times, and in fact, the week of of his final game in the late nineties, Jerry was back on campus paying his respects. And right, and, and when he and when he first met Eddie, didn't he say that Eddie was a little reserved and really wanted to see what this Jerry Eisenberg was all about and why he wanted to come down here? You know, what was his agenda? And it turned right. out he really didn't have an agenda except to find out more about the school and why Eddie Robinson was able to produce that this pipeline of players to the NFL. That was truly why he was there. And of course, it expanded into something else. But there was no other agenda. 
No, it, it wasn't about promoting Jerry in what the work he was doing. It was about promoting a great story and, a, and, a, and opening the eyes of America that there are great athletes that are at this school. The, the coach is a great father figure, a great role model. The focus is on education and athletics. And, you know, and a lot of these players are going to become the greats that you're going to know about in the years and decades to come. And um, he was he was so far ahead of the curve in identifying that as an important story that people forget about that, that, yeah, he he saw this story and it was ignored by by hundreds of other journalists. Yeah. Thousands. And, thousands. And, and like we said, like I said before, his actions really spoke louder than words. And mm. he really acted upon his beliefs, did Jerry? In fact. He even organized a yearly football game called the Pride Bowl. Part of his Project Pride initiative, what was it, who did it benefit, and how did he pull it off? Okay, this game was played for 30 years. So, and, and, and and think of the difficulty in getting sponsors and getting scholarship money for anything for 30 consecutive years. You know, there's downturns in the economy, businesses shut down, businesses move, people, you know, people move and pass away. So to find contributors to, to fund scholarships and to fund academic programs, that's what the money went for, was for after school programs in a very impoverished area, Newark, New Jersey. He used proceeds from the game to fund scholarships for hundreds of students over the years. People that became, you know, people that went to Ivy League schools became doctors and engineers and lawyers and teachers, all different kinds of uh, jobs that benefited society. Um, so they sold game programs and, uh, you know, they, they, they sold tickets for the games. And those things also were uh, sort of the driving force of, of funding for Project Pride. It was a uh, NPO that he established in the 1970s. And it was a way of looking back on what the city had become after the riots in 1967. And a lot of the inner city, uh, you know, really w- was damaged greatly. Fires and, you know, buildings were destroyed and people moved out. The economic downturn was, was really significant. And it took decades to really start to see it turning around. And um, this was his way of giving back to his hometown. Jerry grew up and lived in Newark his entire childhood and lived and worked there for most of his adult life. You know, one of the amazing things about Jerry is he was able to accomplish so much as a writer when it came to these types of social issues and and inequality. And people still read his column. It was a sports column. And he, like I said, he did so much. Another significant issue he covered was that of Bob Voorhees. Um, he wrote a column about Voorhees' death, um, you know, at VMI, which is now known as Virginia Tech. 
Jerry's column might have been the catalyst for an out-of-court settlement. Tell us about Bob Voorhees. What happened to Bob Voorhees? Why Jerry got involved? And what ultimately happened? Years and years ago, uh, Bob Voorhees was a college football player at, like you said, VMI. And he was practicing on the field uh, one day. uh, And through exhaustion and through dehydration and through bad his health condition, he, he, he dropped dead on the field and the school tried the, the athletic department tried to cover it up, you know, like tried to not let the facts get out, tried to, wasn't fearful. It wasn't fear of lawsuits. So Jerry was well aware of uh, Voorhees background and, and uh, high school career. And I'm guessing he followed him to, to VMI a little bit. You know, he was on the periphery with stories that he might write about, but the tragedy of, of his death, you know, struck a chord with him. And um, he used the power of the press, the power of the column to take a stand. You know, he, he wrote about um, the problems of the way this was handled and the way they're practicing probably too much, right? At, at the time, like from out of the blue, nothing to extreme volume of practice. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Like there wasn't a gradual curve in, in, with, with the way this was handled um, in the start of the, of that college football training program. And um, he actually wrote about this issue for five consecutive columns over five days. So the impact of that issue was really um, hammered home. And he took the, you know, he, he, he didn't let it slip away. Like it wasn't a one-off. It was, it was continued and continued and continued. And I should go back and read those five things and get back to you even again and, and tell you, what is it? What is the takeaway from each of those five columns? Like what is different about part one to part five and how he wrote it. But what was, what, what is significant about that is this is a college in Virginia. The newspaper is in New Jersey. So so the, the geographical distance is, is, is big enough that most papers will probably say, okay, do it once and, and that's enough, right? You've got other things you can focus on, the New York area. But his editors and the, and the publisher and the publishing family, the Newhouse family, they said, you know, they gave him the, the, the liberty to write what he thought was important. And eventually the, uh, the mother... Uh, did receive a, um, a settlement, did get some money from the school. Uh, I, I'm sorry, I don't have the figure in, in front of me, but- It was uh, you know, like the, 1.4 million. Oh, no, 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 me. no, I'm sorry. That's what they were going after. It was an undisclosed out-of-court settlement. You, um, right. If but, I remember correctly, I don't recall what they got, but they were, I, I it think, was, go ahead. Okay. I think what might be significant about this story also is that generally speaking, these kind of things would have gotten swept under the rug and nobody in the public would have learned about it. And the fact that this case was brought to the forefront, it probably helped other cases that, you know, in the future and programs had to be held to a higher level, you know, like you got to players health and safety has to be more important than winning football games. 
I think mm-hmm. that's the that, that's one of the takeaways, and and also just the way the school's immoral handling of the situation. Mm-hmm. Now, um, let's go back to his writing for a second, because in order to take up these kinds of issues and and to mm-hmm. write effectively about them. Um, and to take a stand and to be good at what you do, which he was better than good. He was phenomenal or is phenomenal. How important was the command of the English language, proper grammar to Jerry? And what role, here's a fun one for you. What role did music play in his ability to write so eloquently? So command of the English language, Proper mm-hmm. grammar, and what role does music play, or did music play, in his ability to write so eloquently? Okay, I like I like the question. Um, command of the English language is is huge because for Jerry, the the power of 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 narrative and, and you know the proper words and verb verbs that really carry a sentence. Those are things that the influence of Ernest Hemingway uh, really affected how he approached his job. You know, Hemingway has been dead since the 1960s, but his influence on writers of this generation, who are maybe 20 years old now, I don't think I don't think people know quite much about uh, Ernest Hemingway. But um, it was all about this short declarative sentence, and uh, you know, books like Old Man and the Sea. Are, are really eloquent examples of that. Just, uh, you just tell people you, what's going on and you don't have to get into 97 word sentences. Uh, I, I think that's part of it, definitely a part of it. Um, what about as far music? As the, yeah, music. But as far as grammar goes uh, oh. before that, um, you know, if you cannot, if you cannot structure the sentence properly, it just, it, 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 um, it ruptures the syntax. It really just interrupts the flow. And Jerry spoke about guys that like, like Jim Murray and Hemingway was such a great stylist, but he knew how to use the language to carry his story. And, um, decades ago when Jerry was teaching part-time, um, at the new school in New York, he actually, uh, you know, like relayed this point to one of his students who gave him like a hundred word intro paragraph. And uh, he, he said to one of the students, um, you know, the Bible in, in Genesis talks about God created the earth in seven days. And, uh, you know, like, uh, you know, like just, you say like one thing and then you move on to the next thing. It's like, uh, uh, what was it? Uh, and God saw that it was good or, or uh, you know, that kind of sentence. That's all you need to say. Sure. And music? Um, you know, as a young, as a young guy, uh, late teenager, uh, around age 20, um, Jerry used to visit uh, Harlem on the weekends, uh, go, up from, go up from New Jersey, uh, uptown Harlem, uh, North Manhattan. And uh, he would play in some of the jazz clubs uh, on weekends. Um, this is an era when jazz, like like around 1949, 1950, 
when jazz was still really, really big, you know, before rock and roll. Uh, so you think of you think of jazz and big band and swing maybe as really prominent forms of music at that time, pop music. And uh, Jerry played seven or eight instruments. Um, he wow. wasn't an expert. Wow. He wasn't. He wasn't great um, at any of them, but he had he had proficiency to play all of them, like the trumpet, the trombone, uh, and uh, the saxophone. He had. Uh, he could do a little bit of everything. Um, I don't think the drums, though. I think like the the things you hold in your hand, the instrument. And um, a couple times he would play. He would sometimes join these like improvisational uh, concerts and uh, or just join like a, a live event and um, free flowing kind of like they allow a few people to get in right with the band. And one time they were short of a person and um, they asked him to join in. Uh, I think he had a, I think he had a saxophone that, no, he had a clarinet that day, if I remember correctly. And uh, so he, he, he goes on the stage and uh, the guy hands him, uh, hands him the sheet music for whatever song they're going to play. And Jerry said, I don't, you know, I, I play it by ear. I don't read music. But um, so the, <laughs> what are the songs? So I, I don't know how long they were going on. Maybe 15 minutes, maybe 20 they started playing a few songs and then whatever reason their, their set became the time when he would do, he would have a solo, an opportunity to showcase his skills. Right. And um, so maybe the drum stopped, maybe the guitar stopped, maybe the trombone, maybe it was like a sequential thing, but it's Jerry's turn to go solo for a few minutes at a club on a weekend night, maybe a pretty large crowd. If you consider, um, the time period in American history, jazz was pretty damn big at that time. And um, I guess he just got stage fright. He, he froze up and said, uh, like, he, he just, uh, he lost confidence and lost um, concentration. And, and like, really, he got through the song, he said, but he really just struggled to even, like, stay focused. And thought he, he thought he did a terrible job. And mm. he got really nervous and said, and later on, he said afterward, like, uh, I might have musical aptitude, but I can't do this as a career. I can't be like a, um, I, I was a budding musician, but I can't really make a living getting paid to play live. Maybe I could do like uh, weddings and bar mitzvahs and birthday parties, <laughs> like it's a small country club, but this isn't the career for me. But um, so he saw what he saw, what he had ability to do, which was actually play. But enough of an ability, but he saw that uh, he didn't have the, I guess, the bottle to really stay focused. Um, it, it got to his nerves. But what he learned from that was using music, um, how it connects to literature, how it connects to the written word, and how music, how there are pauses, and how there's a rhythm to how the sound um, goes through the instrument to the eardrum. And how people, uh, like how jazz has a certain sound to it, right? Or how rock and roll has a certain pace and a speed. And uh, one thing that makes him an interesting study of, uh, of literature and sports, is, sports too is how he, how there's a rhythm to his writing and certain words and certain phrases are sort of like a musical phrase. Hmm. And, interesting, uh, interesting. He also... He uses the ellipses as kind of a pause 
like you would have a pause in music. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. But yeah. but with the ellipses with the ellipses in the column, he also said that he's using this as a way to get people to connect the ideas in their own mind. Like, oh wait a second, the writer is telling me this phrase and what happens next is really part of a broader point. It's not a new paragraph or a new sentence. This is a kind of a continuing stream of, of what's going on. Uh-huh. Interesting. You know, and I think to be a good writer, it doesn't matter what your topic is, whether it's news or sports, politics, whatever, but to be good, even great at what you do, you have to be honest. You need to be trusted. So you mm -hmm. can get the good story that when the person you're writing about or whom you want to write about, when you mm -hmm. show up to write about that person, they trust you. They don't say, yeah, I better not say that around this guy. You know, I don't know what he's going to do. You have to be trusted. And that leads me to this. Tell us about Jerry's relationship or his friendship, his camaraderie with Muhammad Ali. Okay. Well, um, as you saw with the book cover, uh, Muhammad Ali is a central figure in Jerry's life. Uh, and I thought it was a way of tying in everything together is this is a man who passed away uh, in 2016, and if you do a poll of people, um, if you do a scientific poll or even a, um, a unscientific poll, and you say, if you give people like five choices, name the best column that was written in remembrance about Jerry, about Muhammad Ali, I think that the top vote you'll get will be Jerry's column that he wrote in uh, June of 2016 uh, when Muhammad passed away. And, and part of the reason is the column was epic in its length. I think it was close to 3,000 words, but also it it, it touched upon uh, decades, uh, centuries, no, no, decades of a friendship that uh, had began when both men were younger, a lot younger. Um, Jerry wasn't a nationally known columnist when they first met, but he was already well-established in his career. Um, they actually first met at the... Uh, at the Rome Olympics in 1960, um, I think in the, actually when, when, when Muhammad Ali, then Cassius Clay, you know, was walking around the Olympic Village and kind of just hamming it up. You know, he was, he was in awe of, of his own celebrity and in awe of being recognized. And, uh, you know, Jerry was observing Muhammad Ali, um, Cassius Clay, at that stage of his life. And... Um, he saw him, you know, he saw what he did at, at Rome when the when the light heavyweight title. And that was a that was a springboard to, of course, his, his great career as a boxer. But one one thing that kept Jerry and Muhammad Ali so close was the fact that Jerry covered so many of his fights and he spent time at training camp days upon days uh, through the 60s, through the 70s. So for his entire pro career, uh, Jerry was around. Uh, and this involves many countries. You know, this involves, of course, going to Florida when he trained in Miami to fight uh, Sonny Liston, 
This involves going um, years later to the Philippines uh, for the the thriller in Manila and the fight against George Foreman in in uh, Kinshasa. So Jerry had been around Muhammad Ali um, through the highs of his career and also during the lows. That's an important point when when other people did not uh, agree with his decision to become a black Muslim, Nation of Islam follower, change his name to Muhammad Ali, and uh, you know refuse to be drafted into the military. Jerry uh, respected those decisions and said, this is America, this is your right to do these things. And it was an imp- uh, unpopular stand that he took. But uh, I don't know how many of those columns that Muhammad Ali read, but you know, word certainly got to him that this is what Jerry's stand this well, this is the stand Jerry's taking, but I think also when Muhammad Ali heard the questions that Jerry was asking, he sort of realized what he was writing about. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Sure. Um now as far as their friendship goes, one thing that made Muhammad Ali so different than a lot of other athletes, I guess you could say, is the availability of him. For access. He, yes, he had handlers. Yes, he had a management team. He had a lot of people that were hangers on. He had Angelo, Angelo Dundee as his, uh, his trainer. He had Bundini as his kind of like a guru, spiritual uh, uh, cheerleader. Uh, but um, Muhammad Ali loved having people around him. He loved having people, uh, you know, he loved the attention. So I guess he, one thing that, that Jerry was always there and um, that helped them become close friends and um, their friendship had ups and downs. And uh, Jerry did not agree with Muhammad Ali coming out of retirement, for example, to fight Larry Holmes in the late seventies or to fight uh, Trevor Burbick at the end as well. Um, so he, you know, he criticized him and he told him, you know, you, this is this is damaging your your health. This is risky. He he told him stuff he didn't want to hear as well. He wasn't just uh, you know uh, a sticker fan. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Interesting. But through it all, through through it all, they they re, they did they remained friends up until um, Ali's uh, passing in 2016. Hey, let me ask you this. Let's get back mm-hmm. to his real job, writing for the Newark Star-Ledger. Yeah. How do you think writing for that paper instead of a New York Times, a New York Daily News, a Washington Post, how do you think that might have negatively affected his notoriety? Um. I think uh, if he was at the New York Times, he would have probably won a Pulitzer Prize. Um, so that would have carried prestige throughout the latter half of his life. Uh, probably he would have won a Pulitzer back in back in the seventies or eighties. Um, I'll give you another example. Um, the year a year after um, Roberto Clemente passed away in seventy two uh, in a plane crash on a human- humanitarian mission from Puerto Rico to Nicaragua uh, after the um, uh, devastating uh, earthquake, right? Sure. Um, and 
a year after that, Jerry, uh, the one year anniversary of that of his death, he flew down to where the plane, the closest spot of where the plane uh, had crashed uh, along the coast of Puerto Rico. And uh, he did a documentary about that. And he also wrote columns about it. And 30 years after the of his passing, he also went back again and retraced uh, retraced um, the arc of Clemente's life, his humanitarian mission, his family's legacy of the legacy that his family carried on and how there was a sports complex and a charity and all these things that the family uh, focused on to honor their uh, Roberto's name. I don't know how many reporters um, went back uh, 30 years later, but Jerry was one of the few, I'm pretty sure. And um, so he, he utilized his understanding of what are the biggest stories. And um, this carried him, uh, this carried him beyond um, the Newark star ledger, but I think mm -hmm. he probably would have won a Pulitzer if, 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 if the New York times um, had been behind uh, like um, advocating for it. Mm -hmm. I think sometimes the, the, the institutions that are more national, they influence the judges a bit, the voters a bit more, you know? Well, I don't want to give everything away, but it is certainly addressed. Uh, a Pulitzer Prize is certainly addressed in your book. And Jerry had some pretty interesting comments, some colorful comments about it. But let's leave that, uh, let's leave that little nugget for, for the people who want to read your book. What I want to know is, a okay. man with Jerry's talent for writing, why <laughs> did he choose to write about sports instead of news or politics or the issues of the day? Why did Jerry Eisenberg find writing about sports so important? Okay. Well, one thing I did not mention in the book, but one thing that really um, resonated with him when he was in high school was... Uh, his English teacher in high school, who also served as a basketball coach in Newark, uh, they were having a conversation one day and, uh, and it, it came to careers. And Jerry, Jerry said, I probably don't want to go to college, uh, but I like sports. I want to write about, I want, I like sports. And, the, and the, his teacher said something to the effect of, uh, you know, you should write about what you know. And uh, Jerry's father was a former minor league baseball player and semi-pro player in different stages of, of his adult life. And baseball was really big in his childhood. Um, and um, it, it really, it really affected him as far as what he was interested in at a young age. Um, and his approach to writing, um, he, I guess he, well, part of it was he liked to explore what made people, uh, like how people overcame struggles, how they overcame um, obstacles in life, but using the, using the daily uh, performance of a game or a match or a, like one round of a golf tournament, though, that was a way of him uh, to explore those things. Mm-hmm. Jerry Eisenberg wasn't just another sports writer, was he? I mean, as Jim Lampley said, he didn't make himself a part of the story or a story period. 
what he was writing about was, was the story. He just happened to pen it. How should Jerry Eisenberg be recognized? What should we know about Jerry, respect about Jerry? And when the unfortunate day comes that Jerry is no longer with us, how should Jerry Eisenberg be remembered? He should be remembered as, as, as uh, a few things. A great humanitarian, a prolific uh, columnist, uh, a great stylist. He should be remembered for using the, the platform of a column to tell stories that will resonate decades after they're written. You go back and look at what he wrote in the 1960s about race relations, about boxing, about uh, about baseball, um, some of the issues that Roger Maris dealt with in his life. Um, these are things that still matter today. Uh, when you, as far as if you're researching a topic, you you'll want to go to him as one of the first people you look at. So. I think he's in the short conversation among the last um, three, I'd say the last 75 years or so of, of sports reporters, sports columnists, because it, you got You got to even start in the fifties um, early in his career. He was also writing great stuff and it really picked up when he became a full-time columnist in 1962. But um, in be, before that uh, interrupted by the Korean war, he had been writing some really good stuff in his early 20s. Well, you cover so much of it in your book, Going 15 Rounds with Jerry Eisenberg. And I encourage everybody who's listening to today's podcast to um, get a copy of Going 15 Rounds with Jerry Eisenberg. There is so much we didn't get into. You know, the fact that boxing might just be his favorite sport. He loved horse racing. The other writers who spoke about him, the other issues that he that that he fought for. I mean, what a life, what a career that Jerry Eisenberg had. Um, Ed, how can people get a hold of going 15 rounds with Jerry Eisenberg? Okay. I've got I've got a um, press release on my website edodevinreporting.com and maybe you can put the link on your on, on the podcast most definitely um, and uh i'm selling the book at this point through um through ebook channels uh primarily uh barnes and noble apple books um pay hip which is a direct to sell direct to sale um format um google playbooks um I'm working on getting a few other uh, companies to have it uh, in their online marketplace, but Barnes and Noble and Apple books are the two main ones, I think. And for e-readers and, and just e-book e formats. Um, well, um, I will encourage everybody and I do encourage everybody to, to find it. I will list it on my website, sportsfh.com. Um, and of course I always post about, um, my guests and and the books that they write on my Facebook page, on thank you Twitter, on Instagram, Ed, all the way from Tokyo, Japan. Thank you for stopping by to join me on Sports Forgotten Heroes to talk about a true treasure when it comes to sports writing. Jerry Eisenberg, 
Ed, thank you so much for being here. So I want to again thank my guest today, Ed Odovan, for sharing so much with us about Jerry. You can find his book, Going 15 Rounds with Jerry Eisenberg, anywhere you get your ebooks like Barnes & Noble, Apple Books, again, anywhere you get ebooks, And you can visit Ed's site at edodevinreporting.com. That's E-D-O-D-E-V-E-N reporting.com. EdOdovinReporting.com. Next on Sports Forgotten Heroes, I will be taking a look back at a remarkable career on the ice, a career that has been overlooked for so long, a career that probably should have ended with a Hall of Fame induction and sadly, a life that recently came to an end. Join me as I talk with the great, Vic Hadfield, and the family of Jim Nielsen as I take a look back at Jim's terrific career as a defenseman with the New York Rangers. For now, thanks for listening, and I'll see you next time on Sports Forgotten Heroes.